Welcome to the Lexington Public Library's Tales from the Kentucky Room podcast, where we discuss everything Lexington and Fayette County history. I'm Miriam, and in each episode of this podcast, we will feature a guest that will share a piece of local history. So thank you for tuning in and enjoy. Good day, everyone. Thank you for joining us. Today, we will be talking with Arwen Donahue about her 2009 book, This Is Home Now, Kentucky's Holocaust Survivors Speak, based on oral histories she conducted for the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum's post-Holocaust interview project, as well as on portraits of the survivors by photographer Rebecca Gale Howell. Together, Donahue and Howell created the exhibit, This Is Home Now, which premiered at the Lexington History Museum and continues to travel to venues around Kentucky. In her most recent work, Rooted Words, Kentucky Writers on the Land, Donahue combines oral history, writing, and art in the exhibit which premiered at the Pam Miller Downtown Arts Center in Lexington in 2018. She lives in Nicholas County on her family farm. Thank you for joining us, Arwen. So today we're going to talk about your book, This is Home Now, Kentucky's Holocaust Survivors Speak. Before we get started, can you tell us a little bit about how the project came about and what inspired you to to write this oral history? Sure. Well, thank you for asking me to come here. I'm really happy to talk about this. It was an honor to work on this project, Mm -hmm. and it still has repercussions on my life to this day. Mm -hmm. I moved to Kentucky from Washington, D.C. in December of 1998, and I had been working for the Holocaust Museum Mm -hmm. there in the Department of Oral History. And one of the projects, I was the program coordinator for the oral history department. And one of the projects that I was in charge of was interviewing Holocaust survivors all across the U.S. about their lives after the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. And we had interviewers in different cities and different towns and doing these focused interviews and asking people Mm -hmm. about their experiences after the Holocaust, because my boss, the director of the oral history department, had no- had this idea to do this project because she had noticed that Holocaust survivors often don't get asked about their Experience lives the after okay. the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. And when you think about the scope of a whole life, mm-hmm. you know, the Holocaust was this tremendous tragedy mm-hmm. and catastrophe that had a huge impact, of course, but mm-hmm. it was also, depending on how you count the years, something like 12 years yeah. from 1933 to 1945. Mm-hmm. So there's all this, all this life that happens afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. How do people rebuild and how do they build community and how do they build family again uh-huh. if their families have been destroyed? And how do they make human connections again after experiencing such trauma? Right. What impact does it have on their faith? What impact does Mm -hmm. it have on on every aspect of their lives? And when I moved to Kentucky, Mm -hmm. for unrelated reasons, my husband grew up in Lexington, Lexington, and we we ended up moving here. We wanted to live in the country, and so it was a big, big leap. From Washington, D.C., I'm sure. Big leap, and we moved to a rural farm. Wow. So it was tremendously different. Yeah. (laughs) To say the least. And I had to figure out how to build my life from the ground up. And I was still actually managing this one project Mm -hmm. for the Holocaust Museum, this this interview project, because I could do that from, since we had interviewers all over the country, I could do that from Kentucky. I had found a a few survivors who lived in Kentucky Mm -hmm. and I thought, oh, 
That's so interesting, you Mm -hmm. know, because most of the survivors that we were interviewing, most of the survivors that exist in the U.S. settled in New York, Mm -hmm. something like two-thirds of the survivors settled in New York, and then of the remaining one-third, most of them settled in cities that had significant, not only significant Jewish populations, Mm -hmm. but also populations of other survivors, so they could be with people who knew something about what they had been through. Mm-hmm. And in Kentucky, of course, you don't have, you know, if, if those who settled in Louisville had access to Jewish communities, as did, you know, everybody has can, can find a Jewish community mm-hmm. if they're willing to travel, but, but can't really be sur- surrounded by communities of Holocaust survivors. Yeah. And so I just, I got interested in looking into how many survivors came to Kentucky. Why did they come to Kentucky? Why did they come to Kentucky? And what have their lives been like since they came here? And and it really was, of course, dovetailed with other work that I was doing for the Holocaust Museum. And um, so that was how it started. Yeah. While you were doing this oral history and hearing the stories of people like Sylvia Green and Robert Holzer and Anne Klein and Justine Lerner, how did it affect your style of storytelling or writing? And how did it affect you on a personal level? Mm -hmm. That's an interesting question. Well, it really enabled me to do a deeper dive than I had done before Mm -hmm. in how the role of place in people's lives, especially in Holocaust survivors' lives, because I had spent several years by that point interviewing Holocaust survivors and studying their stories and helping to record their stories. But the sur- most of the survivors that we interviewed at the museum were coming from all over the place. So this was an opportunity to really look at, at community in a more um, holistic way, I mm-hmm. think, to talk to people and say, okay, yeah, I might interview several people who live in Louisville, and mm-hmm. what was one person's experience of community like yeah. there versus somebody else's? Everybody sharing this kind of unusual experience of being a Holocaust survivor in Kentucky. Mm-hmm. It was it was a different perspective. Yeah. You had interviewed several people in Louisville, and they each had their own experience. Some people felt compelled to connect to the local Jewish community, and some of those folks didn't. They wanted to just move on. They didn't want to trudge up the past. So I found that interesting about, you know, how everybody reacted differently to that sense of place. One of the overarching themes of each person that you interviewed and in their struggle or need to fit in in the late 40s, early 50s, most of them, there weren't many Jewish people in the Louisville area or somebody you interviewed, I believe it was Justine around Winchester. How did they reconcile that need with maintaining the integrity of their Jewish faith or uh, and Jewish culture. You know, it's very difficult when you're not connected to a community to do that. How do you think they reconciled those two? Well, there was a there was a whole wide range of chronological mm-hmm. range of when people came to Kentucky and mm-hmm. that and that did make a difference for some yeah. people if they there was a man named Oscar Haber mm-hmm. who actually ended up living to be 103 yeah. years old. I, I had so. the honor of of attending his 100th birthday and his 103rd birthday. <laughs> party, which was just like the best party I've ever been to in my life. But so he came later. He had lived in Israel. And then someone like Sylvia Green, who was actually the one who lived in Winchester, mm-hmm. um, arrived, I believe, in 1946. Wow. And and she had moved to this little tiny town where there wasn't a Jewish community. And her Jewish identity and her Jewish faith was extremely 
important to her. And she was, she, she married a Jewish man who owned, I think, the only Jewish business in Winchester. And she became a member of the congregation in Lexington at Ohave Zion mm-hmm. Synagogue. And she ended up having her bat mitzvah at, at age 60 or something oh, like wow. that. You know, she did, she had missed her teenage Jewish life. She didn't want to let that go. She, mm-hmm. So she worked hard to get a Jewish education and to, and she really was a vital part of the community yeah. at, at that synagogue. Mm-hmm. Um, but so being, having access to the Jewish community in Lexington was really important to her. Mm-hmm. But also it was, there was the other, the flip side of that was that she was um, a member of maybe the only Jewish family in Winchester, or one of the only Jewish families in Winchester. And she felt very scared, I think, mm-hmm. of, of, and vulnerable yeah. in that position. Yeah. And her experience had been so traumatic yeah. with losing her, almost her entire family, mm-hmm. that she just kind of buried it and then she didn't want her children to be burdened by that and so she hid it from them and she didn't let her children know that she was a survivor Mm -hmm. because she felt like they were already having to carry the burden of being jewish in this small town the story of how it came out is part of what the heart of the book really Sylvia Green shared her story after, in 1981, a Tate's Creek High School teacher was teaching Holocaust denial as fact. And unfortunately, he was doing that for a few years until somebody finally raised the alarm about the dangerous repercussions of teaching that in the classroom. She participated in a documentary documenting the experience of Holocaust survivors, which is very important even today that we remember six million Jews did die at the hands of a very evil movement. A lot of the people interviewed pushed down that experience and they didn't want to share it because they didn't want to burden their children and grandchildren, but they felt compelled to share the story because of the importance of sharing that memory so it can't happen again. Oftentimes, it wasn't something that they that they would. That was part of what was striking to mm-hmm. me as the interviewer was that if if these people, if someone like Sylvia Green had settled in New York City, there would have been somebody else to step up and speak up, and she could have told her children about her history mm-hmm. and let it let it stop there. But she was required by her community mm-hmm. to speak up because there wasn't anyone else to do it. Mm-hmm. So she had to step into this role that, that you know, if she hadn't wound up in a, in a small, a small town. town in Kentucky, she <laughs> yeah. wouldn't have had to play. Exactly. You know, it's also striking that in 1981 in mm-hmm. Lexington, that teacher denying the Holocaust was not considered such an abnormal thing. It was the yeah. Jewish community. And I think if it happened now... A lot more more of the of people from other groups would mm-hmm. would be up in arms about yes. it, but it was it took the Jewish community at the time saying, "Hey, that's not that's okay." Not okay. <laughs> Another thing that struck me is the sheer strength of the women like Sylvia Green and Justine Lerner that showed throughout, and people like Anne Klein, her son, in an unfortunate accident, he became a paraplegic, but she endured it with such grace. And she says that going through that, it brought up some pain from her experience in Auschwitz. But again, it's pushing down those feelings in order to survive, in order to move on, and crying in silence. And However, you know, they, they found the strength to, to tell the story. And the lack of bitterness 
that, the that those women that you yeah. named have was really remarkable to mm-hmm. me. Mm-hmm. How you how you can survive that. I believe it was Anne Line that went back to Hungary, but mm-hmm. she didn't want to go into her house or even walk in the streets of her previous community in Hungary because she was worried that she would run into people that helped in her capture and her family's capture mm-hmm. because she didn't want to embarrass them. Even after she, all she went through, she was still concerned about... The, she still had this empathy. Empathy, yeah. That was strength to me. So tell us how your experience was interviewing the Holocaust survivors. Were they willing to talk to you, or was it hard to get them to talk to you? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well... I'd say that that was a mixed bag. Mm -hmm. Some people found it much easier to talk than others. Mm -hmm. And and that's a really hard line to walk as an interviewer because you really, it's really painful for some people to talk and Mm -hmm. you don't want to be the person who's putting another person through that pain. Mm -hmm. So we talked a little bit about Sylvia Green, who who's lost her mother and father mm-hmm. in the camps and who survived Auschwitz herself and doesn't get more traumatic than that. And she doesn't she doesn't like talking about it at mm-hmm. all. And she she let me know that. But she understood and I understood the importance of doing yeah. it. But then her her husband was very pr- understandably very protective of her, mm-hmm. and he would kind of come into the room and say, "Aren't you done? Aren't you done yet?" Because oh. he knew that she was going to suffer afterwards. Yeah. And so there's that part of me that was saying, "Just let her go," you know. Yeah. She's let done. It, let it let go her out. let her be in peace. Mm-hmm. And there was the other part of me that was saying, "This is this is our chance." Yeah. And and, you know, you have to be guided by the person that's, that you're interviewing. Mm-hmm. And then there were other people like Robert Holzer mm-hmm. or John Rosenberg, who they could just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. Yeah. <laughs> and it was wonderful. Rebecca's photographs were really wonderful. And that, that was an, a really crucial part of the mm-hmm. process of the whole yeah. project. It became an exhibit after that. What about your family? Can you talk to us a little bit about how you came to Kentucky? I know you mentioned that you had married into a Kentucky family. Yeah. Well, I come from a very kind of eclectic background. Um, my my father was raised Catholic. My mother was raised Jewish, and mm-hmm. both of them sort of left their religions of birth mm-hmm. and started following an Indian guru oh, and. Wow. So I was raised with a very mixed sense of identity. And I traveled to Poland after I graduated from college. I had sort of a research assistantship with a woman who was writing a book about, I'm going to date myself, this was 1992. (laughs) So it was after the democratic revolutions in Eastern Europe and after the fall of the Berlin Wall Mm -hmm. and the the Iron Curtain. And so it was just this remarkable time of flowering Mm -hmm. in, in in the former Soviet bloc. And I had the opportunity to travel with her to do some interviews, take notes while she did interviews with women in Czechoslovakia, then it was Czechoslovakia, Hungary, and Poland. And while I was there in Poland, I took a course on on Poland during the interwar years, so between World War I and World War II. And it was taught by a man named Jan Tomasz Gross, who ended up writing, later wrote a very important book called Neighbors about mm. Polish history during the Holocaust and, and 
violence of the Polish community against the Jewish community after the war. It was a life-changing course for me to be present in Poland and study the Holocaust and realize that this was not ancient history mm-hmm. and, you know, walk down the street and see people above a certain age and know that they had witnessed yeah. the things that I was reading about in, in cl- my classroom. Mm-hmm. And my my mother's family came from Poland. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, my great-grandmother immigrated by herself at age 13, oh, came across wow. on a boat. And I never knew her, but talk about a strong woman. Like yeah. She came 13. over and she learned five languages and she, you know, she was, she lived in poverty and she married an abusive man and mm-hmm. she had seven kids, I think. And as I mentioned, with my mishmash family, I never really had a sense of like, where do I belong um, in all of this? Where mm-hmm. are my roots? Mm-hmm. I felt like I don't have a place or an identity in some way. Like I... But that experience of being in Poland and learning that history was understanding some something about my roots okay. in a very important way. Mm-hmm. And then when I came back, I got a job. This is sort of summarizing the story a lot, but I got a job eventually at the Holocaust Museum in the mm-hmm. oral history department. And um, the rest is the rest history. Is history is <laughs> <laughs> One of the people that you interviewed, his name is Alexander Rosenberg, and he mentioned that when he was in the camp, I believe it was Westbork, some of the folks that he was in there with, a lot of Libyan Jews, mm-hmm. he said um, that Rommel had shipped off to Italy and they had been held in camps in Italy, apparently under Red Cross supervision. My family's from Libya, and mm. um, and that struck me because my grandfather always talked about his Jewish neighbors in, in Baghdadi and, or in Misrata, and, and you always hear about a lot of dishes that came from Jewish culture and that we've kind of carried on, and my grandmother, you know, cooked with her Jewish neighbor, and when I saw that, just it struck me that some of my grandparents' neighbors ended up in this camp, and it just really touched me when I read that. And Westerbork, I mean, that illustrates the enormity that the Holocaust was. And Westerbork was a transit camp in the Netherlands, and so this was this this sort of way station where Jewish people from all over the place mm-hmm. were coming just and then being sent from there to extermination camps or concentration camps and yeah i think it's important to share their stories yeah. uh, even after they've passed on in order for people to remember you know a lot of people that are living today are disconnected with that history i think so it's important for us to make sure that it's kept alive in people's memories absolutely Are you working on any current projects with the grants that you've been awarded? Yeah, it's rather different from this book, but I I have been doing a lot. I'm also a visual artist, mm-hmm. and I have been working for the last several years on projects that bring together in some way visual art, oral history, and textual storytelling. Mm-hmm. And so, and I love working that way. Mm-hmm. It takes a long time to kind of create something out of it. So, so it's been slow, but, <laughs> but I do have, I recently completed, it may be completed a project about Kentucky writers mm-hmm. and their experiences, like how their roots in land and place have informed their, their work and their imagination. And that project was partially oral history and partially making portraits, making paintings of them and their places. Mm-hmm. It turns out that a lot of Kentucky writers have farming in their families. And I, I haven't mentioned this, but we, or maybe I did mention it, we moved to a farm when we came to Kentucky. And yes. my husband has farming 
ancestors mm-hmm. and we we live on a working farm we raise vegetables and it's as i mentioned earlier the transition from washington dc to rural kentucky was rather <laughs> jarring um, yeah <laughs> and and part of my education has been to learn about rural life yeah. and to learn about the issues facing rural people mm-hmm. and there's such a rich and wonderful history of living close to the land Mm -hmm. in Kentucky. And the work of Kentucky writers has been really important to me in that Mm -hmm. process because writers like Wendell Berry and Crystal Wilkinson and Marianne Taylor Hall and Morris Manning and Bobby Ann Mason, Nikki Finney, who's now moved to South Carolina, but we still claim her as a Kentuckian. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, these people all have a really deep understanding of farming, mm-hmm. farming and what it means to live in a rural place, mm-hmm. and they articulate it in their work. And mm-hmm. so I wanted to explore with them how that happens, how place gets translated into imagination. Yeah. Especially since most people think that art is a, an urban, like making art is sort of like you have to go to a city to do that. What's more inspiring than earth and, and land and place? Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah, so it's been interesting. And the oral histories for that project are archived at the University of Kentucky, and they're okay. all, a lot of them are online. And then I had an exhibit in, well, last year mm-hmm. at the Downtown Art Center here in Lexington. And okay. got some, I've got some paintings from that exhibit that are going to be in, an, in another exhibit at the Lexington Art League coming up. Okay. When, when is month. that? Let's see. It's called the Bluegrass Transplants Mm -hmm. Exhibit, and that's at the Lexington Art League. I think it opens, well, it's going to be there September, October. Okay. Yeah. A painting that hasn't been exhibited before of Nikki Finney that's that's linked to her oral history Mm. is going to be in that show. So I'm excited about that. Thank you so much for sharing your work with us. Thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Tales from the Kentucky Room, a podcast brought to you by the Central Library's Kentucky Room staff at the Lexington Public Library. If you enjoyed listening, please take a minute to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. If you have any questions about local history or genealogy research, you can visit us in the Kentucky Room to use our collection and newspaper microfilm. Or you can email us at elibrarian at lexpublib.org. That's elibrarian at l-e-x-p-u-b-l-i-b dot org. I'm Miriam, and we'll be back with another trip down Lexington's memory lane. <laughs>